Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Shath, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by David Tisch, co-founder and managing partner at Box Group, co-founder and chairman of Spring, and head of the startup studio at Cornell. David, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to uh, chat today. So, David, I wanted to dive in today with you, you know, on all things venture and startups. Um, but before that, I want you to give our listeners some more insight into your background because it's interesting and, and pretty nonlinear. You know, you went to Penn for undergrad and NYU for law school, worked summers at corporate law firms in, in New York at Wachtell and Skadden. But within five years of graduating from NYU, you ended up founding and running Techstars in New York and, and becoming really deeply ingrained in the startup world. So talk a little bit more about how you went from law school to getting so deeply involved in startups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I grew up in um, New York. In, in fifth grade, I got my first computer, um, and I became a nerd, and I uh, learned to code. I was building things at the time in HyperCard using Apple Script. Uh, I graduated a little bit and sort of started to, to figure out some deeper programming languages, but I sort of walked away uh, from that when I was... Uh, about halfway through high school, mainly because my Mac broke uh, and I didn't really want to figure out things on a PC. Um, and by the time I went to college, I went to college from 09 to, uh, from 99 to 03. And in that period, uh, the dot-com bubble uh, sort of grew and then burst. And so graduating Penn in 03, a career in the Internet just wasn't something that made sense. I don't think I knew anybody who was an engineer, let alone uh, sort of was thinking about a career in the internet given the timing. Um, and so because of that, uh, I really didn't know what to do. Law school seemed like a, a way to sort of delay my figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, I went to law school and I spent, as, as you alluded to, two summers working at incredible firms. Uh, and one of the things I really wanted to do was to really test out what law was. And so I worked really hard during those uh, two summers and determined pretty quickly that uh, sort of working at a law firm and being a lawyer wasn't what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I went and passed the bar exam uh, and took a job working in real estate finance uh, with sort of the idea of oh, let's learn something from scratch. While I was there, um, being exposed to the real estate world, I ended up uh, sort of coming up with ideas. And because you're working in development and sort of thinking about uh, spaces and imagining what they could be, I, I did the same thing more uh, during that period than I had in a long time about the internet as well. And around sort of 2006, you saw the uh, beginnings of what the New York startup ecosystem is today. A lot of interesting companies were being founded, uh, sort of, you know, brain power was shifting uh, away from finance and thinking about startups for the very first time uh, in this city um, at, at a real scale. And so my brain uh, sort of went there too. I started to learn how to code again. I spent my nights and my weekends reading as much as I could about the startup world and eventually left uh, real estate to start a company. So um, did that for two years, uh, failed in every which way I could um, and got myself sort of a nice landing spot at a company uh, that was a VC-backed company where I spent two years running their internet division, building an R&D labs. Uh, and this was during a time when the economy was struggling uh, but this company was very cash rich. And so we were able to hire some incredible talent that I was able to learn from uh, sort of how to build software, how to launch products, um, and really just how to think about sort of uh, tech organizations. And so uh, by the time I left there, 
uh, it was an incredible two-year learning, um, you know, of sort of how to do this on someone else's time. Uh, and I felt like I was in a position to, to commit myself to what it was that I loved, which was uh, early stage technology companies and sort of watching somebody have an idea uh, and, and build that into something real. So that's the long-winded answer. No, it's interesting because you, you know, you kind of take the foundation of having, uh, you know, a pretty monumental failure, but then also what it sounds like to have success to lay the to lay the groundwork to go on and do some really interesting things in in the latter half of of um, you know after that period of time, and that's that's kind of what I want to focus on. You know, Box Group and TechStars, you've invested in you know over 150 companies and seen and evaluated. I'm sure you know in the neighborhood of you know 10,000 plus companies. You know, for, for those that are listening and, and don't know, you've invested very successfully in a number of fantastic companies like Stripe, ClassPass, and Warby Parker, GroupMe, Trello, DataMiner, among, amongst others. And one of the most interesting things I find about, you know, your investments is, you know, yes, you're an early stage investor and so you, you try your hat in many things, but it's really in a broad swath of industries um, and, and business models. And so given that your purview has been so broad um, and it's been over, you know, the last decade or so, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how companies have really evolved over the past decade. You know, at the, at the macro level, what are some of your observations on, you know, similarities and differences in things like founder mentality, culture, and, and the relative complexity between getting started versus scaling? Absolutely. You know, when I, when I started in uh, 2007 in this industry, technology was a vertical. People were opting out of other jobs and other industries to come into the tech world. What's happened in the past probably five to seven years is tech went from a vertical to a horizontal. And so tech is now impacting every single industry. If you are not a tech-enabled company thinking about software, data, and how, how they can impact your future, you're in trouble. Um, and so technology, to me, is this total horizontal that you're watching uh, transform every single industry. And so when you look at the portfolio of companies that we've invested in at Box Group, um, that's the impetus for the, the breadth of what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, more recently, you're seeing it uh, really start having an impact in financial services. Right before that, the wave of healthcare started. Before that, it was the consumer-enabled tech businesses. Um, and so you're seeing, you know, media, um, education, every single industry today uh, has a tech component to it. And so I think it makes sense that we're looking at such a diverse uh, set of companies and making investments into them. And I also think that, you know, the idea of sort of going deep in one vertical and expecting repeated success, uh, given um, just sort of the, the market opportunity is a stretch as well. And so as a seed investor, you're not probably walking into um, a specific day or an investment or a, a vertical with a thesis. You're really looking for founders who have a passion to go build something with a, a depth of knowledge or sort of a, a thesis on uh, what they're trying to build that you connect to and, you, and, and it resonates with you. And so um, we're really opportunistic more than we're thesis driven. We're looking for founders who have a passion to go do something that they care about uh, and really aligning ourselves with them. And so as you see that shift from, you know, from vertical to horizontal and, and as the ecosystem changes more broadly, um, you know, in that way, how do you see that impact your role as an early stage investor, right? You, you had some pretty, you've had some pretty interesting reflections on this, you know, in the past when you've spoken. And, and one of the things you talked about at the Forbes, um, you know, under 30 summit last year was this topic. Talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the, some of the kind of differences you see that, um, you know, how you can help as an early stage investor. And then, 
you know, on the on the other side, areas in which it, it starts to actually become a little bit more complex, given that it's not a vertical focus and it starts to become horizontally broad. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that a, a first-time founder makes is expecting investors to help build the company. Um, it's just unrealistic. Investors are not uh, and should not be expected to be able to operate your company. It, it's a stretch to think that investors are going to provide magical advice as to the specific vertical you're working in, your specific idea, the timing of your um, idea in your current market. It's just not what the competency of an investor is. There are some investors who have direct experience building things in your market. There are some investors who've operated at you know incredible companies who can take a lot of those lessons and translate them into something that is hopefully helpful to you. But I think it's a stretch and, and sort of a mistake for founders to expect investors to provide magical value uh, in building the company. Now, what can investors do? They're great at making introductions. Introductions range from um, you know business development, hiring. Uh, PR to what I think is the easiest thing for investors to do, especially early stage ones, which is help companies raise more money. The majority of venture-backed companies that start with a seed round have expectations of multiple rounds after that. That is where I think investors can move a needle. So we've spent a ton of time at Bach Group just making sure that our investor network is big enough to be able to leverage that for the scale of our portfolio. So we really do um, try to focus on providing value through the things that are um, actually capable of scaling versus sort of promising magic and letting founders know. Uh, we're incredibly transparent with this. So uh, what we don't do is walk into sort of a, a pitch where we're telling an entrepreneur how we can be helpful and promise uh, all these things that are just unrealistic. We try to set expectations up front, uh, and it's always better to sort of over, uh, under-promise and over-deliver, uh, and we really try to do that. I think it, you know, I think the way you put it is interesting, and it, it's it leads me to a, a next question, which is, you know, it's an interesting time to be an early stage investor, right? Um, access to capital has become more democratized. There's more and more knowledge dissemination, which is great for founders. And then fundamentally, if you look at a macro level, you know, cost curves around technology are enabling enabling new kinds of business opportunities. You know, the adage in venture and kind of beyond the seed stage has typically been that, you know, regardless of the amount of capital that's available out there you know, the same number of generational companies are historically started every few years, right? And 90 plus percent of the exit value comes at the hands of less than 2% of the investments. And I've, I've seen that's, this added... That's pretty, uh, that's pretty daunting, huh? Extremely daunting, right? And, it, and, and it's interesting because I think it has a couple implications, of, a few of which we'll talk about on the founder side for how the media's, uh, you know, I think um, sensationalize a little bit of entrepreneurship these days, which is not great. Um, but it's on the other side, it's often used as an argument for there being too much capital in the ecosystem. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, you know, on, on the availability of capital and, and what that means for the ecosystem. I, I think you can actually frame the argument a little bit differently, right? And it's, it's not that there's enough capital in the space. There actually should be more, it just out, isn't allocated efficiently or looking in the right places, right? You know, I, I live in Atlanta and I get asked all the time about interesting companies in Atlanta from outsiders in New York, Silicon Valley, Boston, because the same level of connectivity isn't here, you know, and, and Atlanta is still a large global city, but it's outside of the three big startup hubs in the U.S. So as we go forward, how, and, you know, knowledge continues to get uh, disseminated, access to capital becomes more democratized. How do you think about kind of that capital availability and allocation phenomena? I, uh, I have a, a sort of different view on this. I think every company is underfunded. Uh, and I'll, I'll sort of 
explain what I mean there. I, first off, I think um, there are too many companies. I think the idea that everybody should start a company and that it's sort of a um, fun or learning activity is a mistake. It is a incredible commitment of uh, everything that someone has to get a company off the ground. And I think that uh, the idea, and, and look, I, I'm a professor that teaches uh, how to start a company at Techstars. We incubated uh, early companies and, and help launch many at a time. I just think at the end of the day, it takes a truly committed team um, for you know upwards of a decade to get a company off the ground. That is not a fun activity. There are ups and downs. Some of it is wonderful and great. But at the end of the day, the length and the significance of that commitment um, is daunting. And as you sort of alluded to, there are very few real winners in this industry. And so the idea that you go in and uh, expect to be able to get out with a win uh, is hard. And so I think you know anything from sort of preparing for failure to founders' mental health, these are things that are uh, – you know, in a good way, coming more and more to light uh, in today's sort of content. That said, um, in order to compete in what is no longer a vertical of technology, but instead is this horizontal where you're competing against long-established companies who have significant market share and significant resources, the idea of being able to do so on a shoestring budget for years is not realistic. So I think there becomes a moment when you have proven, you know, some form of product market fit where the thesis is right, where it's going to take a significant amount of capital um, to, to win. And so in the consumer world, reaching the American consumer specifically is really expensive. There are no magical channels to acquire customers. Virality is just something that is you know, become harder and harder to find in consumer businesses, such that the idea of being able to just sort of launch and go viral and be a huge company overnight just is not realistic. And so I think capital is one of the weapons that a company can use to combat the challenges that are, are sort of, you know, throughout the market. Um, I think that, you know, being great at fundraising is a skill that almost Every single um, founder should become great at uh, pretty quickly. And so it doesn't mean at the seed round you need to be you know, raising $100 million. It means instead that at some point you need to embrace the idea that as a CEO, a significant part of your job is fundraising. And you need to become great at it the same way you are operating your company or executing uh, within your market. And I think there's sort of a meme that happened in sort of 2006 to probably 12 that said fundraising is a distraction. I think that's a huge mistake for founders to walk in with that mentality. Uh, you have to embrace it. You have to realize that this is part of your job. It's what's going to keep the lights on. And it's what's going to enable you to compete at the scale that you're going to need to compete at in order to win. And so um, things like SoftBank's Vision Fund, to me, are the right step, uh, not the wrong step, in enabling startups to compete at, at a global scale. And so I think you'll see more and more uh, big funds, and you're seeing with Sequoia right now, uh, raise significant amounts of capital, deploy significant checks into growth stage companies that enable them to compete at that level that they're going to need to compete with. So let's let's talk about let's dive into that concept a little bit more, right? Because I think you know venture as kind of an asset class is is pretty interesting, um, you know, for for a couple of different reasons, right? But one of the fundamental reasons being it's a space that obviously is you know focused on disruptive innovation and deploying into 
um, you know, companies it thinks will have massive impact and massive value. But as an industry, it hasn't really changed all that much in the past you know, 20 or so years, right? Sure, seed stage funding is getting more crowded. You know, late stage growth equity is coming, you know, from more traditional institutional investors. And part of those signal change to me, but part of that also just signals market cycles as opposed to fundamental change. I do think there is potential for fundamental change in the space on a couple fronts. You know, one, um, ICOs and tokens, more hype than utility probably at the moment, but intriguing promise here of decentralization, faster liquidity. And I think that partially actually tags to the core of what you're saying of that, you know, companies are, most companies are underfunded, right? I think the second piece is, you know, just data-driven sourcing and analysis at scale. I think investing is a very largely human activity, which is why it's been, um, you know, permeated or sort of protected from technology for so long. But I start to look at some of the models out there, like what, you know, the team at Social Capital has been able to do, for example, right? Not in, not in a very long period of time, but launching their capital as a service model is pretty fascinating because it starts to source, you know, companies at scale, right? And it applies some pretty rigorous data frameworks at, at the earlier stages where I think investing is, is more of an art uh, rather than a science, um, and it, it, it seems like they're trying to turn it into more science and art. So I think there's a there's a side interesting kind of philosophical discussion there. But how do you think about, you know, when you when you kind of think about these pieces like ICOs and tokens and, and decentralized investing or or you think of the application of, you know, rigorous data frameworks and such to early stage investing, these start to seem like they can they have the potential to be more fundamental shifts. How do you think about you know, your role as an early stage investor and, and kind of in the concept of investing as an ecosystem moving forward, you know, what changes do you think we'll see and we won't see? Look, I, I believe more than ever that this is a people-driven business. I also believe that the people, the sort of gatekeepers, need to rethink the types of founders that they're funding. And so I think, you know, diversity in this ecosystem, diversity of background, diversity of, um, you know, how a... Uh, a company's going to build uh, momentum, diversity of uh, ideas are vital. It, it has been way too long uh, of a track record of a lack of diversity in this industry. So anything that disrupts that is wonderful. That said, you have crowdfunding, which sort of came, went, might come back. I think ICOs tap into that a little bit um, of sort of democratizing access to um, startups. These things are scary to me. They're ripe with fraud. They're ripe with um, sort of bad stories. As, a, as an early stage investor, you have to be prepared to fail somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of the time. You see estimates that say, you know, 40, 50% of the time. I think those are um, pretty underrate, uh, under sort of uh, rating the, the failure rate. I think 70 is a reasonable number. I don't know very many people who can stomach losing seven out of 10 times. And those three times that you don't lose are probably not going to be big enough wins to make up for the seven. And so if you're going into startup investing with the intention of, I'm going to find the next Facebook or Uber or Snapchat, um, that is a bad idea. And so the first step in investing in startups is the expectation that you are going to lose 100% of the time. If, if you go in eyes wide open, whatever vehicle you're using to do this, I think is great. So I think educating the investor that the likelihood of success here is minimal is the first step in the right direction. Um, the vehicles for how to invest. So um, ICOs, interesting, very early. I think there's going to be some uh, incredible blood that gets um, 
shed here with some, you know, bad founders, bad fraud, um, shadiness in the ecosystem that will get cleaned up over time. We've participated in a couple as, as Box Group. Um, you know, we're interested, we're leaning in, we're not leaning out, we're not uh, anti, but at the same time, I think, again, there's a sort of um, willingness to fail and a comfort around failure that has to be built into the investor. Um, you know, am I scared that the democratization of, of sort of startup investing is going to kill my business? Um, probably uh, I'll look back on this comment and, and be ashamed. I don't think so. Um, I think there have been uh, plenty of attempts to sort of disrupt VC. I think broadening access to startups is wonderful. I think the idea that um, venture capitalists don't have a skill and sort of that can be democratized totally um, is a stretch. I think you have wonderful talent at the top of the venture capital world that are uniquely good at what they do that are not going to be disrupted by sort of uh, new systems. And if the new systems are the path for disruption, I think those best investors are going to be a lead of that, sort of not uh, too late to it. So let's talk about the the failure rate, right? Because uh, we, we chuckled about it a little earlier in the conversation. You're right. It is daunting, especially at the earlier stages, because the failure rates are higher. Um, and I think you can learn as much from success as you can from good failure. And I, and I qualify failure with, with good because I think it's a bit of a sensationalized topic today. Um, in, in the scope of investment, you know, I, failure I, I see is it can be both action or inaction, right? Companies in, you invested in that you shouldn't have or companies that you passed on um, that you shouldn't have, right? You've, you know, you've talked about how Zynga was the second pitch you ever heard. Um, and it was a it was a concept that you heard you know Mark Pincus described and you said um, you know this you, you didn't understand the concept you said how could this ever be you know how could this ever be a product in a in a market you know from that experience obviously it's one data point but you know other companies you may have missed out on or, or didn't turn out the way you envisioned which I imagine is a large number what large are number. what are some of the those key learnings right what are some of the key learnings you've walked away with and I think most interestingly how have you harnessed those. Um, you know, to be a better investor. So I, again, I come back to this. You cannot change the failure rate. So you have to go in with the expectation that you're not going to be better than everybody else who's ever done this. So with that said, I think how I look at it, and, and this is something I've uh, grown to sort of believe, um, in order of the things that bother me the most, not seeing a company. Not seeing the opportunity is a thing that drives me crazy the most. So if there's a company that raises money and we would have been interested in funding it, not having seen that opportunity is a thing that I lose sleep over. Um, the second thing I lose sleep over is seeing a company and making the wrong decision on it in the um, sense of passing on a good company. So when we look at a company and we make a decision not to invest and that company goes on to succeed, um, I look at our, our sort of decision-making process and say, what did we do wrong? How did we miss this? How can we be better at this? Um, the third is we find a company, we want to invest, but we don't get the opportunity to invest. There's too much competition for the round, and we're just unable to invest in that company. Um, that's something that we can get better at. We need to build a better reputation. We need to have a better relationship with the founders. Whatever that is, we can correct that. The last thing I care about is failure. It is just not something 
that I can change again. Now, are there bad decisions we make? Are there companies that we shouldn't have funded? Are there founders we shouldn't have backed? Absolutely. Do I try to build better pattern recognition so that I can avoid uh, making those mistakes, sort of the same mistakes in the future? Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, that's not the stuff I'm losing, losing sleep over. We make enough investments that I assume we're going to fail uh, as much as everybody else in the ecosystem. Who I feel for in those situations are the entrepreneurs. These are, are people who have devoted their lives to starting something. They put years of their time. They surrounded themselves with other people who you know, committed their careers to work on this company. And when it doesn't work, it takes a huge toll on those people. And these are people that I believed in. There was a point in time when uh, I thought they were going to go off and build something um, magical, and it didn't work out. And I think the most important thing to do, especially as an early stage investor, is to support those founders in the negative, not just in the positive situations. And so it doesn't mean give them more money or give them more runway. What it means is being emotionally there for them to understand that this happens and that it sucks and there's nothing that's going to make it feel better, but that they are not alone and that this is something that, um, you know, I am not as a, a backer of them going to uh, look down upon them for failing. I think there is one exception to that that sort of bothers me as an investor um, is when you make an investment and the founder doesn't run the experiment. It almost feels as they didn't try hard enough or do enough before failing. That, that's when you sort of say, I backed the wrong person, and this was really a big mistake. Um, but again, uh, that's on me, not as much on the founder. I just backed the wrong person. I need to figure out how not to do that versus sort of walk away with bitterness uh, towards that human who I just picked wrong. Let's talk about that community aspect that you you touched on a little bit, right? I'm you know you've been you've spent a long time in New York. You've been a tireless advocate, you know, for the community in different ways, right? You've run, you know, as we talked about, TechStars in New York. Um, you're you're the head of the startup studio at Cornell right now, and and um, you've been on you know, Mayor Bloomberg's Tech Advisory Council. You know, one of the things I see outside of the classic hubs of you know Silicon Valley, Boston, New York is. You know, founders that I talk to often tell me how, you know, it's actually, it's it's a challenging environment sometimes to operate in because the culture isn't one around, um, you know, failure, right? Or the culture isn't around, and I think failure in that sense is used as a proxy for, for risk-seeking, right? You know, New York, you know, I'll bear the fact that it's New York City, has really, you know, been able to separate from the pack, um, you know, in terms of startup hubs, over the past decade or so, right? It's, it's really started to come into the conversation, I think, with the Silicon Valley, with the Boston as a leading innovation hub relatively recently. You know, technology is not necessarily in its DNA as much as you know, finances, for example. How has New York been able to do that? I'm interested in hearing about that first. And then the second piece is, you know, what are some of the broader lessons that other cities can, you know, espouse from the way that New York has risen? I, you know, from my vantage point, I often see cities trying to focus on becoming the next Silicon Valley, which is, I think, actually exactly the wrong way to go about it. I think it's totally. you know, for cities, right, just like it's startups, it's all about focusing on your specific strength and accelerating through you know, targeted focus you know, before trying to bite off more than you can chew or, or replicate an environment that's not you know, true to your DNA. Um, so yeah, to, I, I, you know, I, my favorite piece of career advice that I've, I've espoused, and I don't really know where this came from, uh, in my life, but it's it's to double down on your strengths and not focus on sort of your weaknesses. Yep. Not everybody's going to be great at everything. And so I think that translates to cities as well. The thing about New York to me that has worked, um, it's huge. 
B, it's really diverse in that everybody here is exposed to diversity of people, of backgrounds, of socioeconomics, of careers. Everybody's up to something. And everybody's here with an aggression and a hunger to win. And I think that that translates in every single thing you see in the city. It's a hard city. It's not forgiving. There's a, um, an, a, a sort of toughness in New York. And I think that when you look at the startup world, people have compromised the sort of known past finance or other industries to take a bet on themselves in technology. I think that that's the DNA uh, that sparked this community. What you're seeing now, because technology is such a, a you know, more accessible and popular um, path to go down is you're seeing people who come here with that same uh, hunger and aggression and they're picking tech. And so you see people with huge ambition that want to leave the medical world or leave finance or leave law or real estate or media, the traditional um, careers that people could have in New York and are instead saying, I'm going to either disrupt the thing I know or I'm going to find my passion and go build around that. And the, the brain power and the talent here is significant. And you see it in the diversity of the types of companies that are being started uh, and the types of people that are starting them here. And I think um, the city sort of just doesn't, um, it's not a, as, as I said, it's not a forgiving city. And I think the, the key thing for other cities is to accept sort of the differences in how startups have to work. And so that starts with failure, that starts with risk, um, and that starts with attracting talent. Those are the three sort of pieces of, of DNA that I think you need to have. You need to be able to say failure is okay. You need to be able to say taking huge risk is okay. And you need to be able to get the talent um, into the city to be able to support the growth of these companies. Uh, capital is the last piece. I don't think capital as much now uh, sort of focused in Silicon Valley and New York and Boston, it really is uh, willing to be spread around. I think you've seen uh, some exits come out of Alabama and Georgia, um, out of you know the Pacific Northwest for years. Uh, the, the sort of diversity of, of geography is not something that I spend too much time thinking about. I think sort of the, the startup community side of it is a bit overblown. Uh, and a startup community can really get catalyzed with one great company. And so if you have an iconic company being built in a city or in a town or in a state, um, people can really coalesce around that success um, to form that early community versus sort of everybody in this together, doing it together. It, success just doesn't happen that way. Uh, success is more an aberration than it is a community effort. Yeah, I really, I really like the way you put that because I, I think it's a, there's a couple pieces there, right? I think one is this idea of building from the outside in as opposed to the inside out, right? So I think it's low hanging fruit for cities to start to say, you know, let's let's put together accelerators, meetups, et cetera, et cetera, which which are important to get folks connected. But I think fundamental success comes from, to your point, having iconic companies that are started in your area and having a network of folks that have actually seen what success looks like, have started something and can pass on advice and connectivity to the next generation of founders. There's another piece there too, which is, you know, I, I completely heed to what you were saying, the double down on your strengths and forget about your weaknesses, right? I think part of actually to your earlier point when you were saying, you know, companies are underfunded, but there are too many companies out there. I think one of the dangers actually of the way entrepreneurship is is portrayed today is, 
everybody's getting the complex that they should be a founder. And I, and I think people, um, I think people can often be very successful and very accretive to value creation by being, you know, the number six or the number 15 in specific types of roles. You know, everybody doesn't have to be a founder or be that number one to, to highly succeed. The stat I like the most on this is, you know, number 100 at Facebook, um, you know, is wildly more successful, um, than, you know, the vast majority of founders, right? So, you know, everybody can have their different kind of points in, in the ecosystem where they can add value. Um, I, I think to tie this, it's a little bit of a loose tie, but I think to tie this to, you know, higher education, I think there's an interesting, you know, concept that's going on in the higher education and in, in the higher education communities these days. And it's a conversation topic in the tech communities, um, which is the idea of, you know, suits versus hoodies, MBAs versus coders, right? I, you know, after law school, I was, you know, I went to a startup in San Francisco. I was a non-technical generalist, you know, with a JD background, right? Um, and I think oftentimes it was, it was interesting when, I, you know, when I'd interact with folks, I kind of faced the backlash on it and, and the conversation I would always get into kind of boiled down to, you know, MBAs, JDs, advanced degrees are, are kind of worthless, right? When you're talking about startups, um, I think what's more interesting is to have the conversation kind of at the nuance level, right? Which is to say, you know, what are the pieces of an advanced degree curriculum and structure um, that could be applied to a space where truly deep learning does actually come through application and experience? And I, and I think, you know, what you're doing at Cornell Startup Studio on that lines is is really interesting. And, and I want to hear a little bit more on, you know, what are your thoughts kind of on this topic? And, and um, you know, what are you up to at the studio and how do you kind of break through this? Yeah, I, I don't think that um, we're at a point where founders have to have a specific background uh, to start a company and at the same time where the DNA of the early uh, sort of employee set should all be technical or all be you know marketing or sales. I think diversity of background and diversity of skill set is vital uh, to success. Um, I do not think everybody should be a founder. I think... Uh, being a founder is an enormous responsibility. You have a responsibility uh, to yourself. You have a responsibility to whoever backing you. But most importantly, you have a responsibility to the people that you're asking to join you on your journey. And I just don't think that sort of the team of five people without the ambition to uh, get to profitability or to grow the company is a good use of people's time. Um, you know, to the Facebook point, which I agree, uh, you know, employee 100 is better off than you know, Facebook than, than a founder, Facebook's a total aberration. I think the thing that does need to get fixed is making sure that startups are incentivizing that first set of employees better so that the attractiveness of being employed for eight or 10 uh, is up there with being a founder. Um, you know, 50% of your own thing is not worth more than, you know, 1% of Facebook, but it is worth more than 0.2% of somebody else's mediocre startup. And, and from a learning perspective and from uh, sort of a human perspective, it's better to try something on your own than it is to sort of join somebody else's mediocre startup. So I do think that um, there is a balance to that. Um, you know, in terms of uh, graduate degrees and sort of what's going on at Cornell Tech, um, I think the biggest mistake people make is they label themselves by their graduate degree. You are not a JD. You are not an MBA. You are a human with a specific interest set and background and uh, hunger and ambition. And so leading with the I am an MBA, I think, is the biggest mistake. And we spent a lot of time at Cornell trying to coach people into how to tell their story such as not generalized in the wrong way. 
Um, and I think that that's something, uh, if you walk into a startup and say, you know, I have a graduate degree from X, so therefore I'm an expert and can do this and this and this, it's the wrong approach. Instead, um, going in there and, and figuring out um, how to be a problem solver, how to be a great teammate, how to work as an organization to enhance the, the company's opportunity, just a much better approach uh, to being a great employee and being a great teammate. Yeah, I like the way you put that a lot. And it leads to the final question here, which, you know, you touched on a bit, but, you know, you can elaborate a bit more if you'd like, which is, you know, if you were starting your career again, you know, you give this advice to, you know, folks in your MBA classes all the time, but if you were starting over again, you know, what advice would you have given yourself? I sort of flailed around a bit and didn't really, uh, you know, find a, um, a, let me phrase it differently. I would find something successful and try to join it. I think learning from success is a lot more valuable than learning from failure. While, yes, you can extract lessons from failure, you can extract a lot more lessons from watching something succeed and being part of it. It builds your confidence. It builds your uh, network, and you get to see what works. And so um, I might not have went to law school. I might not have taken a, a year and spent it in real estate. I think those are great lessons, and I can explain to you why they were valuable to me today. Um, that said, that's not the – the straight path. And so instead, what I've tried to fight my way into getting a job at Facebook or Google or something that was growing at the time, uh, seems like a much more interesting way to learn um, than, than sort of going the roundabout way. So uh, figuring out what success looks like early in your career, I think, is a really unique um, unique exposure that you can translate and carry with you uh, for the rest of your career as you go off and do whatever it is you're going to do. Well, David, this has been you know incredibly helpful and a, and a really interesting conversation. So, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us some really great insights today. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed your questions.